This episode of PodCastle is brought to you by Behemoth Brewing and Distribution Company. Try a Sasquatch's old hairy bastard stout. Long believed mere legend, this extra strong stout, brewed from roots, berries, twigs, dirt, fur, and crushed cameras, will lengthen your stride and put hair on your chest. Discovered by renowned cryptobrewologist Roy Coleman Schuker on one of his many expeditions in the Great North Woods. Podcastle 330 for September 26th, 2014. Drink Me, a flash fiction extravaganza. Rated, shoot, I don't know. I think the 21 and over thing is maybe a bit overkill for our show. Nobody's ever gotten drunk off our stories before, right? So I'll just say listen responsibly. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor. Today we have a flight of fantasy fiction stories for listeners showcasing all the different tastes of make-believe. Think of it, maybe, as Podcastle's own version of the World's End Tavern, where you come to drink and celebrate and listen to stories. We come to tell you them. Best of all, no hangovers. At least, I hope not. These are some very supernatural spirits, but man, a hangover from listening to stories about booze? I'd be like so far out. Oh, also, I happened to mention on my Twitter account that we were going to be doing this special episode and got a message from Behemoth Brewing and Distribution Company, who specializes in fine-crafted fantastical beers, saying they'd like to sponsor this episode for us and sent us a six-pack of drinks, which, yeah... So here's Roberto Suarez with the next one. For those of you who like your beer with a heartbeat. Behemoth Brewing and Distribution Company is proud to present Aztec Nectar Ale. Brewmaster Mutex's unparalleled art brings forth this rich, potent concoction. And every member of the Aztec Nectar team puts his whole heart into our product. Send in three proofs of purchase to receive a handmade flaked obsidian bottle opener, not available in stores. Brewery tours available by appointment only. Thanks, Roberto, and also to the fine folks at Behemoth. This was really cool of them. Although that nectar ale is, I don't know, a little pulp in it, maybe? Okay, our first story is from our flash fiction contest last year, The Wine, by M.C. Wagner. After years in scientific research, M.C. Wagner slipped his chain and fled to the hospital laboratories throughout the eastern U.S. Now, with a marriage, a move, and the down payment on a house approaching, he's beginning to wonder if escaping had been such a good idea. It's read for you by none other than C.S.C. Cooney, one-third of the Banjo Apocalypse, who just read Naomi Novik's story for us. She's the author of Witch, Beast, Saint, the first of her erotic fairy tales from the Witch's Garden, which appeared in Strange Horizons earlier this summer, and The Witch in the Almond Tree, the second in the series, 
now available on Amazon as an ebook. She's also got a short fiction collection coming out soon entitled Bone Swans and Other Stories. While you're dreaming of becoming a butterfly, be wary of spiders lurking in your garden. Do enjoy the story. The Wine by M.C. Wagner It's always the wine. A glass at my elbow or a servant tottering after a stoppered flask in hand. Marvelous. Rich and dark. Or light and fruity by the season. I could subsist on it alone, although I am always in place at the royal banquets, sneaking ladylike bites. And there's the fruit of the orchard, clipped with slivered shears as I wander those primrose paths. But it's really the wine. My husband's great treasure. Casks of it line the cellar, the supply ever replenished. It reassures me to see them there, row upon row up. <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. He loves to tease, and this casts me as quite the lush. I'll not be mocked if that's the only attention he'll spare. I find company enough in the court. We ladies clucking away while sewing for... My husband. It seems it's always for my husband. Though we must have stitched for everyone in their turn, there are dances and masks and feasts to consider, each demanding its own finery. But the wine. Ever a burr at my throat. A tickle in the mind. Delicate sips driving away. A memory. No. A nightmare. I am tending the topiary. Hours pass, and I am starved for a drop. My call unheeded, I find my footman asleep. The fool had drained the flask meant for both of us. And he is filthy. Shoes scuffed. Linen soiled. The wear and grime accumulate as I watch. In moments he seems a gaunt beggar garbed in filth. The strange contagion spreads. My orchard blackens and crumbles, becoming twisted and diseased. In terror I flee to the manse. My handmaiden is there, her hair full of tangles and leaves, clothed in rags and a blissful expression sweeping through the refuse-cluttered doorway. I rush past, cackling crones darning stained hose, a cripple waltzing a dressmaker's doll, and thence into the high hall, and a rotted banquet feasting still lifeless figures. At the table's head a figure greets me. My dear, calls a thin, reedy voice. What can be the matter? He is small, whiplash thin, with jaundiced eyes, high cheekbones, and long pointed ears. His clothes are fine, but his fingers rattle with ill-fitting rings. When he smiles, his teeth are needlepoint. I recoil and find the contagion has reached even me. My hands wither to emaciated thinness, my clothes descend into cobwebbed tatters, and the thirst, the thirst takes me. I flee. Insane urgency drives me to the casks, but none are tapped. I stave in one end with a cooper's mallet and cut my hands. In that last moment, I brush something within the translucent wine. A tatter of rags, 
a blossom of straw-colored hair, and a pair of blankly staring eyes. It's absurd. A nightmare frightens me after so many, many years. Even now my husband pauses in his meal to lavish me with attention. As he kisses my hand, I feel a spider skitter unseen across my fingers. The wine. Where is the wine? And welcome back. I'm going to say that a bunch of times this episode. Chivalry, huh? Hmm. What next? Bitter? Stout? Sweet? Dry? Podcastle will return right after this message from our sponsor. I'm starting to think we should start a drinking game with these somehow. Take it away, Mer Lafferty. Behemoth Brewing Company is proud to present Angelic Effluvia Lager. Made from the tears of the angel Loquel, who is chained in the basement of a Scottish brewery. Goes well with pasta and grilled sacrificial meats. Best of all, you can drink all you want and never get a hangover. Loquel does the suffering for you. It's like my friend Richard Mayhew says, Not all angels are good. Believe you me. But mmm, that Atlantean wine. Our next story is another podcast original. We have, wow, three of these this episode. Awesome. This one is I Rung It in a Weary Land by Kenneth Schneier, who actually wrote this story special for this episode. Kenneth Schneier received the Nebula nomination when was a finalist for the Sturgeon Award for his previous podcastle story, Selected program notes from the retrospective exhibition of Teresa Rosenberg-Latimer, one of our favorites from last year. His stories appear in Analog, Strange Horizons, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Clockwork Phoenix 3 and 4, Daily Science Fiction, and elsewhere, and have been podcast on Escape Pod, The Drabblecast, and Toasted Cake. His first collection, The Law and the Heart, was released by Stillpoint Digital Press in May. A business law professor by day, he lives with his wife and children in Barrington, Rhode Island. He can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and LiveJournal. Pick up a gift for that special someone and enjoy the story. I Rung It in a Weary Land by Kenneth Schneer You never heard of Terry's spirits, and it might surprise you that I still remember it after everything that's happened. I found it the day I lost my job at the walk-in clinic. I'd wandered the streets all afternoon, as you could back then, muttering things I should have said, conjuring lawsuits and petty revenge. On a side street, off a side street, off a side street, so tightly packed between dark brick buildings that sunlight never reached the heavy, frosted glass door. There was Terry's. The tiny interior was cool, smelling of earth, and the first hint of mildew. Bottles lined the walls, floor to ceiling, a few I recognized, a 55-year-old McCollin or a 2009 Chateau Margaux, but most were strange and whimsical, garnet or cobalt glass with labels that might have been Icelandic or Tibetan. A single lamp on the far counter granted just enough light for me to read them, if I got close. I stepped alongside those bottles, as if perusing an art exhibit, 
but started when I noticed the old woman behind the counter. She must have been 80, her hair and a dozen narrow braids like ribbons hanging from a crown, the kind of gray that will never turn white. She was lost in a man's shirt, and her eyes behind crystal discs followed me as if I were a shoplifter. Under that silent interrogation, I blurted that I was having friends over for dinner, and I'd like some nice beer. I had no such plans, but now it was certain that I would, that I must. Terry smiled, nodded, and strode to a corner I should have noticed, pulling out six amber bottles with pearl labels and script I couldn't read. This is what you need, she said. Without really thinking, I paid more for that beer than I ultimately spent on the whole dinner. For three sanctified hours, my five buddies and I forgot the whimpering economy that extorted us into working under martinets and bullies. We reveled in each other's wit and depth. We flirted. We were at peace. I'd never had an evening like that. Of course, I never will again. That was the night when a warmth in my belly told me that Alfie was more than a friend. Two weeks later, I visited Terry and spent three days unemployment on a scarlet bottle of black rum I shared with Alfie on my sofa after a movie. Glasses in our hands, we spoke without flinching what we already felt. Two weeks after that, he moved in. That's how it was for a decade. I'd come in with a vague desire, and Terry produced something obscure, miraculous, and expensive as hell, that gave me what I didn't know I needed. The vodka that made me irresistible in my job interview for the Metro Central ER. The absinthe that helped me mend my broken bond with my father. The January day that Alfie moved out, I nearly ran to Terry's, seeking the cure for a lacerated heart. The door woofed shut, and I stared in desperation at the tiny vessels. A few feet behind me, Terry spoke my name, which I didn't know she knew. When I turned to face her, she was holding a bulbous bottle and gazing at me with what I mistook for sympathy. The bottle was about six inches tall, made opaque by speckles of white, rust, and silvery smoke. There was no label, but a faint ripple on the surface spoke of letters etched there long ago. The top was stopped with wax, its seal showing a hand holding a scepter. What's this, whiskey? I asked. She nodded and whispered, It's what you need. I expected the usual hideous prices, but when I got out my wallet, she shook her head and turned away. That night I took out a souvenir double shot glass from Gettysburg and broke the seal. There was no cork. The fumes carried a tang of iron. I poured an ounce, darker and more syrupy than whiskey should be. It was bitter on my tongue and sour in my throat, and I wondered for a moment if I had poisoned myself. A hot sky glared down at me, and a searing wind pricked me with grains of earth. I smelled dry weeds and dust. I stood in ragged clothes of some unbleached plant fiber, surrounded by makeshift shacks of weathered wood, themselves surrounded by land that was furrowed and planted. But what crops I could see 
were straggly and weak. Around the corner, an emaciated boy of about eighteen came limping, dressed in clothes like mine, but with more holes and tears, coated in dirt and bleeding from a wound in his thigh. Can we go to your hospital? he asked in a high, whispery voice that reminded me of Terry. Then he collapsed. A moment of vertigo and paralysis overcame me. My hospital? Metro Central? From here? Where the hell was here? Then my training took over, and I knelt to examine him, just as a half dozen other stick men and stick women came running from other hiding places. Some of them cried a name, Meet her, as they tried to rouse the young man. Then they picked him up and carried him to a shack that seemed marginally less filthy than the others. I elevated Meter's leg on a three-legged stool and made a makeshift tourniquet, did my best to clean the wound. There was a fragment of soap and a bucket of water, but no one seemed to understand when I asked for disinfectant and boiled a knife and rusty tweezers to extract the bullet. He'd fainted from shock, with no equipment or blood to perform a transfusion. I gave him water and crossed my fingers. Nothing the villagers said made any sense. They spoke English, if that's what I was speaking, but I didn't recognize the name of the town, the country, or the enemy whose snipers picked them off several times a week. Nor did they seem to know the name of any place I mentioned. They called me by my name and told me I was their doctor. When I asked them how and when I came to them, they said, Years and years ago. For a doctor, I had only rudimentary equipment and no drugs. But however ridiculous my position, I was better than the nothing they had had without me. These people were weakened by malnutrition, warfare, and hopelessness. Yet... They planted new crops every year, blessed the rains when they came, eked out what living they could. They married for love and had the occasional baby who sometimes survived. The victims of the attacks also sometimes survived. Of course, I wanted to leave. Everyone wanted to leave, but there was nowhere to go. How could I turn my back on them? I stayed for a week that stretched into a month. When he'd recovered as fully as could be expected in his exhausted, malnourished condition, Mita refused to leave my side and started to help me in my work, hobbling around beside me, cleaning wounds and holding patients. I made an analgesic and an antiseptic from local plants. I failed to save a five-year-old girl with severe asthma a newborn with a damaged heart, and a newlywed husband shot in the chest. A month stretched into a year. I worked 18-hour days, saved a few, became as dry and thin as they. I made friends. Meter became more skilled, learned to suture and set bones, made a general anesthetic that saved a few more lives. At the end of one grueling day, we fell into each other's arms and took what comfort we could. 
A year stretched into ten. People spoke of Meter and me as if we were one person. I watched my patients weaken and die. The village dwindle. Each body coming apart slowly or all at once. Meter held my hand and kept away despair. But I knew that I would live to see everyone perish. That all my efforts would be dust and weeds. On the day after another bullet, the day I laid Meter's body in the dry ground, I lay down next to the grave, knowing I'd used up my last drop of courage. I thought of potent herbs or of offering myself to the snipers, but it seemed easier to let the sun do its work. I took a deep, hot breath and was sitting at my kitchen table my mouth moist, my flesh indecently plump. The little green bottle in front of me was empty. Out the window, it was January. I put my face in my hands and sobbed. I remembered every cursed day and every dying face, tasted the despair that had become habit. I had been there. It had happened. Mitter had died in my arms. After a breakfast that seemed decadent, I hesitantly recalled the way to Terry's. She was still behind the counter, unchanged, as if no time had passed. What did you do to me? I demanded. She looked up. Heartbreak, despair, and the loss of all you have loved? The dead babies, Mitter's flesh cooling under my hands. Yes, I croaked. This is what you needed. I bawled my fists, fighting the urge to smash every bottle and wring her neck. How could anyone need this? Need it for what? She started to answer, stopped, then said to me, your young man left you. It took me a moment to remember what she meant. Mater? Oh, Alfie. Yes. Does it hurt? The question seemed absurd. It was like asking whether a blister hurt after you'd been stabbed in the chest. You can't mean that I spent ten years in purgatory just to get over a boyfriend. No, a lost occupation, a lost love. These would heal without help. I didn't think the loss of meter would ever heal. Then why, I asked. She paused again, as if looking for a way not to answer. Then she held her hands before her, palms up. For what is coming? What? I said. But you already know what happened a few weeks later. The war and plague. The lost cities. The hunger. We are stretched to the breaking point. Every day I treat too many cases of disease and injury. With too few supplies and too little hope. Every day. I wonder how safe I'll be tomorrow. 
The ten years Terry poured down my throat were worse, far worse. Here, at least, there is some chance I can really help. She immunized me for this world by drowning me in that one. If I relived any of those little sorrows I experienced before my exile, I think I'd laugh. But all those dying villagers were real. Meter was real. I've not seen Terry since that January day and haven't been able to ask. Somewhere, are there people living in hell? to give me what my imagination could not. And welcome back. Ken told me this story was inspired by A.E. Houseman's poem, Terrence, This Is Stupid Stuff, which is about a poet who's asked to deliver something more upbeat and inspiring than his usual melancholy. The poet, yeah, he gave a song about all the poisons old King Mithridates drank. It's pretty wicked, and I will confess before all of you, my very own drinking buddies, that I hadn't had the pleasure of reading it until Ken told me that. Good poem, though. You should check it out. Okay, I think it's time now for another behemoth brewing ad. I'm going to go get a refill. Graham Dunlop, meet me at the beach. Behemoth Brewing and Distribution Company is proud to present Giant Whale Ale. A fine, briny ale enjoyed by the band of adventurers and ne'er-do-wells who found themselves swallowed by a great whale, Leviathan. Forced to live inside the whale's stomach, they built a first-rate microbrewery using equipment and ingredients consumed by the beast. Imported by Ahab Imports Limited. Thank you, Graham. I don't know if all of you know this, but Graham has many ads here at Podcastle. He reads submissions for us. He does the sound production for Pseudopod. He performs stories for all three of our podcasts. And now he's Escape Artist's new IT guy. And he's officially my favorite drinking buddy from Down Under. This next story is a very fine vintage. We're proud to present The Forgetting Shiraz by E. Lily Yu. Read by John Chu. Excuse me, I'm sorry. We're supposed to call him Hugo Award winner John Chu now, who won the award this year for his story, The Water That Falls on You from Nowhere. I actually asked John to read this story before he won the Hugo Award, just so you know. This story was originally published in the Boston Review in 2013. A lot of people say they drink to forget. Me? I can't remember. Enjoy the story. The Forgetting Shiraz by E. Lily Yu. When I first heard about the wine grower in New South Wales working on a red for forgetting, I sold the Corolla, which was the only thing left over from the divorce, called up two close friends to tell them where I was going and where I had deposited my will and other documents, and bought a one-way ticket from JFK to Sydney. I had always found it strange that in a world as advanced as ours, in an age when we shot men to the moon and mapped planets around alien suns, we still lacked a true anodyne. 
Alcohol's soft fog burns off by morning at best, and at worst holds a magnifying glass to what we try to forget. Her name, her voice, her face, her smell. Nor do we have surgeries precise enough to slice off specific memories. Whatever form it took, chemical, neurological, or psychological, the inventor of the anodyne would be rich in a blink, and the journalist who broke the story would never want for assignments again. I had called ahead. A few days later, I arrived at the winemaker's doorstep, dizzy with the speed of the journey. I had sprinted from plane to plane to bus to rental car, whipping through green and gold hills whose smooth lines were now and then interrupted by sheep. There was something strange in the light, a richness I had only seen in crackled museum paintings produced by aged egg glazes in what I presumed was sentimental imagination. I was leaning on the wheel, staring at the pastoral spread of spotted cows and hay rolls, all of it warm and sweet-smelling and sunstruck, while trying to stay in the left lane. Perhaps the light in New York had also been like this long ago, before haystacks and furnaces had disgorged their industrious darkness into the air. Though the vineyard in question had a reputation for excellent wines, winning the occasional prize and landing features in Enophiles magazines and even GQ, the place itself was modest in appearance, marked only by a hand-lettered sign, low fences to keep out the sheep, and an unpaved road winding through the vineyard to the house. The man who answered the door had gray in his hair and eyes that were calm and brown and bird-like, without judgment. He extended a thin, strong hand to me and introduced himself as Ted. Back this way, he said. We took a muddy path through frames and pruned trunks that looked alike in their winter nakedness, though every few rows he would name a different variety of grape with a hagiographer's reverence. This one required soil acidity of such and such degree, that one a particular angle to the sun. This one had been his first cultivar, that one was his most popular table wine. We stopped at what appeared to me an unremarkable line of vines, and he ran a knotted hand along the angles of one trunk. Shiraz, of course, he said, first brought to the Rhone in a crusader's saddlebags. He wanted to forget the brutalities he'd seen, start a vineyard, a winery, drink away all memories of war. That grape seemed an appropriate place to start. What did you do? I grafted a few of them under the skin of my forearms. Here, see? He rolled back one sleeve to show me the puckered scars underneath. Grew them there for a year. They took most of primary school out of my head but I didn't realize it until I ran into an old teacher. She remembered me. I didn't remember her. That's when I figured it was working. Really? I trained the vines on the taste of memories. When I transplanted them, I used compost from our house mixed with my kid's baby teeth. Daughter, son, grown and working now. He said to the question on my face. So that went too. And a couple of weeks that were in the eggshells and banana peels mulched them with photo albums. Then it was just a matter of waiting. For what? For fruiting. Then... Pretty much everything gone up until my twenties, he said. The sunlight had paled, and in the distance I saw streaks of silver against a silver sky. But let me show you. The weatherboard house was lined with tall shelves of novels in various states of decay. I saw Proust and Keneally with crippled spines and a paperback Lolita sputtering leaves out of its belly. I had stopped taking notes, and my pencil dangled wordlessly on its string. My memories are in here somewhere, he said, waving at the books. I took precautions. I wrote down everything I could remember about my life, then made Mary and my parents and our kids write down what they could remember, 
and all the people I knew as far back as I could go. It's all in a book somewhere, so I can go back if I have to. So I can figure out what happened to me. He turned a page of a yellow-edged Don Quixote and dropped it back onto the shelf, smiling apologetically. I'm not sure which book. I don't remember where I put it. Mary's your wife? I was looking for her among the faces flattened and framed upon the wall. She died last year. My kids say she's that one. No, the one on the left. And they tell me this is my sister, and that's a college friend of Mary's who was bridesmaid at our wedding. They say I used to flirt shamelessly with her. I don't remember any of it. Your kids, how do they feel about it? The corners of his eyes creased upward. Not too happy. They say normal fathers sometimes forget their kids' birthdays. Normal fathers don't forget they have kids. When they don't think I'm listening, they say Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia. Every other year, my son throws a lawyer at me, trying to have me declared incompetent. He waved towards the shelf in its row of blind and indifferent volumes. I don't remember what I did to make him hate me like that. I wish I still knew. He fell into a fragile quiet, looking into the fire. I shoved my notebook in a back pocket. There was no earth-shaking discovery here. No story that would pay for my plane ticket home, much less rocket me into fame. There wasn't so much as a cup of lightning moonshine that would splatter my ears with blankness. That would have been better than nothing. There was nothing I particularly cared to remember the last ten years. Eight of them had been the damp, choking fireworks of a failed marriage, the other two a dim streak of progressively inferior whiskey and dark and lonely pavements. Ted was arranging wood and rotten books in the iron stove, his back to me. The door was open. It would have been easy to slip out and start the rental car and drive back to Sydney through the rain. But what would I do then? The world visible through the door was glistening, bewildering. There was no place in it for me. Now, he said, as if he had not stopped speaking, flames springing up around the logs and torn pages, you'll want to know what it does to other people. I bottled the first few years of it, and it's pretty good wine, but does it work? How could I tell? It was all whiteness by then. What's another memory here or there? Which anniversary did I forget next? How would I know? He produced two glasses and a black bottle out of a cupboard. There was no label. It was only a lonely old man with a fading mind. You could not grow grapes out of memories. You could not graft vines in your arms. Still, a cold shiver began at the base of my spine. I asked my kids to try it, but they wouldn't. It took away our dad, they said. In the pursuit of knowledge, I said. They still said no. He spun the screw, plucked out the cork as lightly as a daisy's head, and tipped out a red parabola into one glass, then the other. I advertised. I evangelized. A few came here before you, he said. None of them were willing to taste it. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm crazy? It's still good wine. I was born knowing what good wine is, and if I died without remembering my name, I'd still know what good wine is. There's no harm in drinking good wine, if it's only that. But what if I'm right? Between the wet shifting light of the windows and the glow of the stove, the liquid in the glasses seemed a living scarlet, the color of a Rosella's breast, a wound, a woman's rouged lips. He went forward and tossed another book into the fire. It rippled into flame, the title blackening before I could read it. That's why they said no. 
Because they couldn't call me a lunatic, drink down a perfectly harmless glass and leave. Because it was possible that I was right. The scars up and down his arms were thin and twisting, like the tracks of raindrops along a window or the embrace of roots. He gestured to the table. I lifted my glass, which was heavier than I expected. Leaded crystal, he said. The real thing. Who are we toasting? Her face, which I'd walled out of my thoughts with great effort, returned to me. With excruciating exactitude, I recalled the arc of her cheekbones and the angle of her nose and eyelashes, the idiosyncratic twitches of her mouth. So long, darling, I thought. One way or another, goodbye. When I spoke her name, for the first time in months, it was with a throat of rust and water. He nodded, and we raised our glasses to each other. And welcome back. Melancholy indeed, my friends. Melancholy indeed. How can we learn from our mistakes if we can't remember them? Here's something to wash that taste from your tongue. Low-calorie beer. Take it away, Hobson. Behemoth Brewing and Distribution Company is proud to present Low... Calorie light beer, so light that after one bottle you'll float into the sky, land on the moon, discover that the moon is a hollow spaceship, explore the mammoth caves at the moon's core, eat some moon cheese with the selenites, drift back to earth in a stately manner, and find yourself ten pounds lighter than when you began. Please drink responsibly. M.K. Hobson, ladies and gentlemen. Well, up until this point, we've had tales of fairy deception, death, and madness, Stories where a special drink can transport you all the way to another world, or where it can make you forget. All pretty melancholy stuff, really. So, I was delighted when Amal El Motar sent us this last story, also a Podcastle original, also especially for this episode. Amal El Motar is the Nebula-nominated author of The Honey Month and edits Goblin Fruit, a web quarterly of fantastical poetry. She's also another third of the Banjo Apocalypse. Her short fiction has recently appeared in Lightspeed Magazine's Women Destroy Science Fiction Special Edition and Kaleidoscope, diverse YA science fiction and fantasy stories. You can find her online at amalelmotar.com. The story is narrated for you by Marguerite Croft, who's read for us more stories by Amal than any other narrator has. Hey, when you have a good thing going, why change it up? Amal said, How strange it is that the sky often looks like something good to drink. At sunset, I'm often trying to figure out what wine best matches the sky, when of course, what I really want is a drink distilled from it, to find those colors and brilliance in a glass I can raise to my lips. My friends, drink in the sky and enjoy the story. The Ragman Mulls Down the Day by Amal El-Motar It is possible that you have been taught, in the ignorant manner of children today, that the earth spins around itself and around the sun. You'll have been told that this dizzy doddering is why we have such things as day and night, dusk and dawn, a fistful of seasons. This is, of course, untrue. At the edge of the world is a ragman, a thin man, 
a man wisped and gray with a great iron pot and an even greater stick. Morning times, he leans on his stick and watches the light change, watches it flood your sky with fire and heat. But before it can get too hot, before it can burn your cheeks to a ruddy cinder, he raises his stick, tilts the sky pan just so, and coaxes the great slow pour of it all into his iron pot. While it gathers there, he mulls it. In go stars, comets, asteroids, dark and antimatter, dust. In go thoughts of summer side and winter time, dreams of flying, memories of mulberry syrup. In go half-remembered songs, the names of people to whom you were once introduced but can't for the life of you place, and seventeen shades between red and purple that you are usually unable to comprehend, but sometimes grasp as sound or taste or smell. The day simmers down in the ragman's great iron pot, patiently stirred with his great stick. It thickens. It darkens, it sweetens. The ragman dips a careful finger in, burns himself every time while that candy coat of day molds itself around his pointing finger, but blows on it, tastes. When it is just right, when it is a burst of bright impossible, a cinnamon savor numbed with clove and peppered with autumn leaves and a rusty nail, when it is pine resin and raisins and a whiff of smoke. He tips it out again. That slow, sweet spill of you don't know and I can't tell you that makes every night a blessing and every morning a surprise, that glory-be-glamour of gleam and garnet your tongue trips over words for. That's his handiwork. That apple-ripe tartness is his trick. But you don't even know it. You don't even know him. While that day sugar ferments in your mouths and eyes and bellies, while it fills all your secret places with poems and stories and songs, while it tugs at you to pour it out of yourself again in words and wonder and waves, the ragman sleeps. He sleeps standing up, leaning on his great stick like it's a bed, because stirring is tiresome work, though important. You'd have no night without him. He lives alone. He never speaks. He asks for nothing. No thanks, no help, no pay except that burn on his finger and the taste of your world in his mouth. And welcome back. What a beautiful view it is. Well, the end is nigh. The storm is almost over. Our time at Podcastle's version of the World's End Tavern is coming to an end. Thankfully, we have one more spot here for you from Behemoth Brewing and Distribution. 
This one's brought to you after dark, so we asked Cheyenne Wright to read it for us. Behemoth Brewing and Distribution Company is proud to present Deathly Pale Ale, the world's first fungus-based bioluminescent pale ale. This brew's intoxicating effects include apocalyptic visions from the end of time and glimpses into the exquisite horror of a non-denominational afterlife. Brewed from the finest fungi, exclusively imported from the caves of Planet X, beyond the orbit of Pluto. Enjoy a deathly pale ale before it's too late. Thank you very much, Cheyenne. To the moon, my friends. Well... For those of you madly googling to find out where you can get your behemoth fix, I do have a confession to make. I regret to inform you that the only place it's currently available is the mind of Tim Pratt. Yes, those little micro-fiction brews were concocted by Tim and were originally published in a beer issue of the Fortean Bureau, an e-zine run by our old buddy Jeremiah Talbert. Good stuff, and we hope you enjoyed them, and that they sparked your imagination. I just thought it'd be fun to play them as jingles. I hope you enjoyed this whole episode, actually. It was a hell of a lot of fun to put together. And I have to give a very special, very big, heartfelt thanks to Peter Wood, our sound producer, for making it all happen. This episode was a monster undertaking. It's been in the works for probably most of this year. And Peter was nothing but game for it. So yeah, everyone... Raise your glass to Peter. Peter, you take everyone's glass once they raise them. Tell him how much you appreciate him. He worked very hard to make this show happen. Thank you, buddy. Well, that was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, thank you so much for passing around the flask and sharing a fun group of stories with us. Until then, this is Dave Thompson along with Anna Schwind for Podcastle, reminding you to drink responsibly, especially if you're drinking from under the mountain. Stay thirsty, my friends. We'll see you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Shakespeare urged, Come, gentlemen, I hope we shall drink down all unkindness.